This is First Contact, stories of the call center. Brought to you by Noble Biz, your one-stop shop for all your contact center needs, both carrier and software. Each show, we talk to industry leaders on how they got their start in the call center industry, because let's be honest, it's not a dream job. Find all our episodes, you can go to our website, that's www.nobelbiz.com. Hit subscribe on our YouTube channel, or follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for future episodes. Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of season two of First Contact Stories of the Call Center. As always, I'm your host, Christian Montez. Last week, we went a little off script. We brought in our our expert, uh, Steve Biederman, but also now this week, we're super excited because we have the amazing CEO and blues drummer, Gary Puddles. Now, for those of you who don't know Gary, he's a contact center industry veteran with over two decades of experience. He's a serial entrepreneur and CEO of AnswerNet, a full call center service provider and BPO with over 25 call centers throughout the U.S., and Canada. We're so happy to have you, Gary. Welcome to First Contact. It's a pleasure to be here, Christian. And following Steve is never easy. So um, I'm not sure I'm going to promise to stay on script either, but I think we'll give it our best shot. Well, that's awesome. And I think this first part is really easy for a lot of us because in the spirit of what we do here at First Contact, we love to dive in to the journey that you've had into the industry, right? So I know you have a great story for our listeners, and I'd love for you to share that with us. So how did you get into the call center space in the first place? Uh, That's a great question, Christian. I got into the call center space because I moved up from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia for a job. And I loved what I did, but culturally, I just didn't fit into the company that I was working for. So I sat down and I wrote down all the things that I liked and all the things that I didn't like, and I started looking for a business to buy. And those things included recurring revenue, business-to-business services, managing people, and telecommunications. Now, I started that process in in January of 98 happens. And I often say, you know, I I started looking for a business and I found a business actually that was in the industry that I came from, which was the old Muzak industry. And I was going to buy that. And the day I signed a term sheet to buy that company, I got called into the CEO's office. And I often joke, did I get fired that day or did I quit because I had a term sheet? And I'll just say that I ultimately collected unemployment, so that should answer that question. But (laughs) I wanted to be in my own business. I wanted to to own my own business. So when I got, I left the next day, I started due diligence for for the functional music business and all of the things that were in the offering circular were were misstated. So there I was in January of 98 with no job, no company, uh, a wife, two children, and a mortgage. So back to the process I go. And I had seen the telephone answering service business. So this business, uh, a lot of the work you do in this this podcast and, and that Noble Biz does is around bigger call centers. Well, I found the telephone answering service business and it was a traditional business and they were affordable companies that I could buy. And so having looked into that industry, 
I found a couple that were for sale within an hour of my house. So I wrote a business plan and I went out looking to try and buy uh, one of these answering services near my house. And I started learning everything I could about the answering service business. So I started reading Connections Magazine, which is the preeminent magazine for the answering service business. And I started reading. And in the reading, there was an article about a man who had been an who was an owner of answering services, who was very entrepreneurial. And he actually, his office was around the corner from my primary target. So from from January into the spring, I'm trying to uh, trying to raise money and buy my first answering service. Now, I had made a deal with my ex-wife that I had to either buy a company or get a job by August 1st. If I couldn't start my company or buy a company by August 1st, I committed to getting a job. So during the next few months, I'm looking at different answering services. I'm meeting with people. And I met with this this gentleman named Bill to look at answering service, you know, to, to talk to him about getting money from him for my answering service endeavor. Well, Bill and I hit it off and I wasn't though going to do a deal with Bill. I thought, you know, Bill wanted me to work for him and not be an owner. So I went and I tried to do my deal, got into due diligence, raised the money. All of this was happening and it was happening really well. I go into due diligence and I couldn't prove the numbers that the seller was 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 telling me. Mm. So during this process, I had gone to meet with Bill, and Bill had said, hey, come do something with me. I thought he was offering me a job. So onward I went, and when my deal fell apart, I called Bill. I said, Bill, you know, you said maybe we could do something. I went over, Bill said, come and see me. I went to see Bill, and he offered to sell me half of his, one of his answering services that was an hour away. And I went in on a Thursday and I said, you know, he said, my accounting people aren't here. I'll send you the financials. Um, and why don't you come back on Saturday and we'll see if there's a deal to be done. So that's exactly what I did. He faxed me the financials and you can tell the date because I have the old financials. They're on thermal paper. And <laughs> I went, I went back on Saturday and I told my ex-wife that if he says this number or, or lower, I'm going to do a deal. So I walk in after five minutes of small talk. He hits the highest number that I had in my head to do the deal. I looked at him. I said, that's a high price. He said, that's your cost of admission. I said, okay, I'm in, but small problem. I don't have all that money. Um, he said, how much do you have? And I gave him literally my life savings. He took a note for the rest. And that's how I got into the telephone answering service business, which was my first call center, uh, first call center uh, business that I owned. Wow, that's incredible. And to imagine that you really had such a high stakes scenario where you really had to find a job, you really had an opportunity and you took all your life savings. And, uh, you know, at the time, did it feel like a gamble or did you feel comfortable <laughs> and confident that this was like going to pan out? It was a huge gamble. We wrote the agreement. It still sits on my uh, in my conference room. We wrote the agreement on a yellow eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. I never saw the center. I never saw the equipment. I didn't know the customers at all. And, you know, but the problem was, it was when I signed the contract with him to buy that first answering service. And that first service had 20 people and was doing about $50,000 of revenue a month, 
Um, it was July 26. So remember I said my deal with my ex-wife was August 1st. So literally I started operating as a call center owner and I only owned 50% because he he retained the other 50%. Um, and I started business on July 28th. That's amazing. And obviously before this, as you had mentioned, you weren't experienced in running call centers, let alone that being your background. So Quickly, what was your background before this, though? So prior to this, I, I I was a lawyer, graduated from law school, and I practiced for a year and a half. But during law school, I paid my way through law school. And one of the ways I paid my way was becoming the collections manager at a business called Muzak, the old elevator music company. And I, I worked in the Washington, D.C. franchise. And when, um, when I decided to go out and get a, a real lawyer job, um, I kept I kept a really strong relationship with Al Smith, the vice president of that franchise. Well, when his when his father-in-law passed away, um, and Al went from vice president to president, he recruited me out of law into Muzak. And for five and a half years, I worked with Al running his Muzak business. When that business was sold to to the former Comcast Muzak executives, because a lot of people don't know Comcast actually got their start in the Muzak business, not in the cable business. Um, we sold to the old Muzak executives in Comcast. I then was part of a team that won a pioneer preference from the FCC, and we built the first PCS network in the United States, wow. which was the first all digital cellular. Now, what was interesting there is my job was the leasing, zoning, and building of, of cell sites. So we were finished in order to launch. So my first true exposure to the answering service was as a customer at Muzak. My second, my first real exposure to call center training was that because we knew launch was gonna require all, everybody um, on the phones as possible, all of uh, the managers of that business took the call center training. So that was the extent of my call center training was learning there. After we launched, uh, almost all of the management left there. It became what is now known as Sprint Wireless. So I was about the 45th employee in the company that would ultimately be merged into Sprint Wireless. And I took my call center training there. I moved up to Philadelphia for a job as a broker doing the same kind of work. But instead of being a buy side, I was a sell side representing owners of real estate. And then, you know, I just didn't fit. And I decided to get into my own business. Wow, what an incredible pivot. And I mean, there has to be an experience you had at that first time when you were owning that contact center, right? That call center, you're in there, you're now, you're ready. What was that experience like? And were there things that went really well, things that maybe didn't go so well right when you first got going? Absolutely. And just as I got into the business, telecom costs started going down. And that made me look like I was smarter because when I got in the business, long distance costs 11, 13 cents a minute which mm -hmm. when you're billing, you know, 75, 80 cents a minute, that's very meaningful. But when all of a sudden the rates start going down uh, and down and down, you know, it makes your profitability look good. It makes you look good. Now, what was really interesting was the answering services that I was originally buying weren't even connected to the internet. So the agents didn't even have web access. They were all on those old, you know, old uh, back systems. They were, they, they, many of them were, were closed systems. They, they weren't even using PCs at the agent stations. 
So I come in and I have all these ideas about how we're going to use the internet and the software that's available on the internet to do all kinds of things. And we weren't even connected. And the interesting thing was I promoted a woman to be the general manager of the center. And she didn't know anything about computers. So here I am having all these ideas about what I want to be. And I have a traditional telephone answering service lady where I'll never forget. I put her in front of the computer and she was afraid to touch the mouse. And I'm like, they call it a mouse. It's not a mouse. Um, and so the the exciting things that I've done in my career, what has made my career so much fun is, I'm a, as you mentioned, I love entrepreneurship. And I am an entrepreneur, but my specialty is not necessarily finding brand new niches, but taking traditional businesses and pivoting them so that they deal and they're successful in the current business reality. So I took a traditional answering service, which took messages and maybe texted them to a, a pager, and I brought it to the internet. We were able to do order processing. We were able to do customer care. We were able to do outbound calling. So I was able to bring these new technologies in. And when I say I did it, I didn't do anything. I just recognized what was going on. And I had great vendors. I had great partners, you know, including um, including Noble Biz. I mean, I, I was an early client of Noble Biz while Jamie Siminoff was still involved with the company. So, you know, that tells you how long I go back with your company. Yeah, no, absolutely. And now looking back at what you saw then and you looked back to today, has your opinion or anything that you thought about call centers and contact centers in general changed from when you started to now? No. Uh, there, there are certain basic premise, precepts that I came to this business with. Number one, people are social animals. They want to deal with other people. My role as a CEO is to make sure that I have the technology that allows my people to be part of the conversation. So I've always known that the people business was the most important thing. And as long as that I, as long as I'm not a jerk. And that the people who work with me aren't jerks. Somebody will want to do business with us, right? So, so that has, has proven time and time again. Number two, nothing puts a call center out of business. As long as people are part of the call center business, you know, we're, we all know what's going on with AI right now. And it's very interesting. But certain things AI will never be able to do contextual communication and things like that. So there'll always be a need for people. And so that has always been a premise. And then the another big premise for me was people at all levels of an organization can do great things. They have insights, they have passion, they have goals. And if you give them an environment to succeed, they will do amazing things. And, and, and it doesn't matter whether they're in Bangalore, whether they're in Romania, whether they're in South America, South Africa, or the United States. I've always believed that people can do great things from anywhere, under any circumstance. And if you recognize that, then your call center business is going to be successful because the more you can see your people succeed, and the more you can let them achieve, 
the more successful you can be. Couldn't agree more. And with that said, when you look at your business today, how would you describe your business now in 2021 at the beginning of the year and looking forward? My business in 2021 is nothing like that telephone answering service that I bought in uh, in 1998. Interestingly enough, I still own the Allentown office and it's still a telephone answering service, but does so much more with, wow. with um, you know, met, we, we do some telemedicine in there. We're doing some really interesting things. So my business today is really broken into three divisions. And if somebody had said to me in 1998, um, I would be where I am today, I would tell them they're crazy. Interestingly enough, every year since I started the business, I do an annual meeting with my managers. And in 1999, 2000, I introduced that we, you know, a goal that every agent station was going to be web enabled. That was my goal. And and I, we were going to do things like order processing and customer care. And I almost had a revolt of the telephone answering service managers on my hands. They were really upset with me. And I realized that there was so much of that that the problem wasn't them. The problem was me. And, and, and you'll see that theme throughout my career. Generally, when I run into a problem, it's generally my own fault. Or it's my own doing. So the problem wasn't them. It was, this is what they had done. This was a traditional business. So in 2005, I started, I, I started going on a speaking tour that I called Welcome to the Evolution. When I got in the answering service business, everybody talked about how the industry was evolving. Well, I, you know, my thesis was the industry has evolved. So now every by the end of 2000, by the middle of 2004, every one of my agent stations was now web enabled. And every agent was using some kind of software in every site that I owned at that time. And by then I owned 25 call centers and everyone was involved in, in doing different services. Although we were still fairly focused in the answering service business. And I got up there and I said to, I, I got up and I told my team, I was wrong. When I stood up here, I told you about all of the services, the call center services we are going to do. I said, that was a wrong approach. So it's now four years later, and I'm standing in front of you. We are an answering service company. And then I put up the websites of 20 of the most well-known answering service companies, and they were all doing what we were doing. I said, we are an answering service, but let me show you what answering services do. And that changed their mindset. From there, I then was able to pivot into the call center business and the BPO business. By 2006, I owned telemarketing.com, which I still own. So we were in telemarketing, we were in customer care, and the business started to pivot. I had the, the customer care work. And I had the, the telephone answering service work. But in the industry, I was still known as the telephone answering service guy. And it was interesting. Around that time, I worked with, with Noble Biz to help build the, the, the call routing platform that, that you guys have. And we were leveraging this platform of small and medium-sized call centers. And then through, you know, as, as you and I talked about before the show, I'm very active in, you know, I've grown a lot through acquisition. And then I started acquiring more BPO type businesses. So 
what happens is we started in in small accounts. We started as answering services, and two dynamics happened simultaneously. One, some of the early accounts that we had started to grow, and so I got internal growth from that, and we were buying companies, mostly underperforming companies, and and so. All of that happened in 2003. We were named the 21st fastest growing company in the United States. So all of those sort of mobile pieces. And then in 2008, we bought our first technology company. And that was another direction we were taking the company. So when you you ask me, what does 2021 look like? You know, I think that if I were to tell you what I thought, we would sit here a year from now and we would laugh that I wasn't even close. So what I do know is this, we really are four companies now and not four companies, but four divisions. We have a specialty division where, for example, for a fortune 100 energy company, we've built and staffed three call centers just for them. The pandemic has accelerated our growth exponentially, we've been doing work with a large consulting firm, and we're helping states with uh, unemployment claims. We're scheduling vaccine appointments. We're doing contact tracing. We're helping people uh, get um, get subsidies for their rent. You know, we're in for one county uh, in Pennsylvania, we're actually have caseworkers who are helping their people not get evicted. I mean, the work is just amazing. So, you know, that work I know will go away, but it's also being replaced with other work. We're doing some things. If you, if I look forward, we're doing some things in the AI world. And you're like, well, Gary, you're human. And what do you mean the AI world? We are working to put humans in the stream of AI. So when the AI gets confused, we're there. When the AI needs a human touch, we can transfer to us and then push it back into the AI, or we are the live person who starts and then pushes somebody into an AI into an AI session. So all of these pieces are things we're working on right now and we're doing right now. Plus with the internet of things, we have a number of clients that have sensors and things like that. And we're getting more and more where the sensors are triggering uh, activities, either calls, chats, emails, texts to the agents who are then acting on that. So that's what I see the future is we're going to continue to be who we are. We're going to continue to have agents being in the stream of commerce. But I think more and more we're going to see us jumping into a process, being pulled out and letting the process happen but we're going to be in more processes. Well, that's great. And one of the things that you you had mentioned I want to take note on is some of the business you have today will go away, right? Because the nature of the pandemic and things of that nature. And so let's kind of pivot to some articles you've written in the past about managing through downturn, right? And you give some great advice, right? Make decisions quickly, manage to the what is and not to the what will be. But Help us understand as a leader, how do you manage through a downturn? The hardest part is the people, right? So in the call center business, the most expensive thing is people. You have to cut the people. And that's the hardest thing, but you have to do it. I looked at a company once that was in um, the third-party verification business. And a lot of that work had gone offshore because it didn't require um, Americans. And they had built 
technology and that that you know that was supporting a much bigger business well when a lot of that business went offshore the company kept all of the tech people and all of the technology because they thought they were one sale away from fixing their problem and ultimately it cost them their company the best advice i can tell you is that if you if you have cancer on the tip of your finger you have two choices you can either cut off your the tip of your finger or you can let the cancer spread. So one of the things is you have to cut. And, and one of the things that we have focused on at AnswerNet is making a truly variable cost business. Now, we've been very lucky. Every time I think we're about to shrink, we get something else comes through the door and it's been, we haven't had to do much cutting. We did in the first quarter of, actually before the pandemic, we lost a big client, we started cutting, and then the, the COVID work started coming in, and I haven't had that big a challenge as I did then. So the key is being disciplined. It's understanding that, you know, you have to be disciplined in cutting people, real estate, technologies. And as we were growing and continue to grow through COVID, what I told my team was you need to develop three scenarios. Scenario one is that the insanity of growth that we're getting, and it has been, Kristen, it's been insane. It has been ridiculous Mm -hmm. because we've been able to help so many people through this pandemic. Um, So one is that we're going to continue to grow. One is that we're going to stay the same. And one is that we go backwards. And each one of my executives had to have a plan for their departments which represented each of the three scenarios. So it's about being disciplined. It's about cutting where necessary. It's about thinking ahead because as somebody who's bought a lot of underperforming companies, generally there are, there are only five numbers that really mean anything in the call center business. One is what are you billing? What do you charge? There are, you know, there, there, there are a lot of people who are leaving a lot of money on the table who will undercharge for growth. And I laugh because I can't even tell you how many times I've seen somebody say, this is my biggest account. And I notice they're losing money. And you're like, you know, you, I, I'm losing money, but I'm making it up in volume. It doesn't make any sense at all. So you, you, have, you have that sense. Number two is you're overstaffed. I have too many people. When you are staffing a program, you need to think about how many non-billable resources are there to each billable resource. I can't tell you how many times I have found either there are too many agents in a shared environment or there's too much non-revenue work being done, you know, too much non-revenue work because the call center business is full of people pleasers. We love people. Okay, if you don't like people, you don't belong in this business. So I can't tell you how many times, you know, line level managers will add free resources to a client because they want to make the client happy without thinking about what it will do to their to their business. Running a contact center these days takes a great deal of courage and resilience. Noble Biz applauds and salutes the contact center community for not giving up and fighting the good fight, working to set contact centers on the road to success. 
our contribution consists in providing one of the most versatile and cost-efficient omnichannel solutions on the market called Noble Biz Omni Plus. Take your contact center to the next level with Noble Biz Omni Plus. Get instant access to a full range selection of channels, from voice calls to SMS and from email to WhatsApp, Twitter or Telegram. Get control over the external factors with the possibility to switch from an on-premise team to a remote system in just a matter of hours. Get integrated compliance support, advanced reporting, seamless agent dashboard, and many more high-grade features. All in just one product, Noble Biz Omni Plus, a crisis-proof solution for scaling operations. The third thing is real estate, and the pandemic has changed that game. So, you know, oh, yeah. I can't tell you, I, I remember I was talking about the guy who was holding on to his technology. I walked into his call center and it was gorgeous. Steel case furniture everywhere. They had a statue with the company logo in front of the building. The, I hadn't wow. even seen the financials yet because I, uh, my friend was actually in that company. I drive up to the company. I see this beautiful stone version of their logo, and I knew they were in trouble. I didn't even have to walk in the door. Um, and so those really are, and then your sales and marketing costs. I had a, you know, I do, in addition to owning my own, I have had partnerships. I had a partner who would spend 15 to 20% of our revenue on sales and marketing because she really wanted to grow the business. And she was an amazing saleswoman, by far one of the best saleswomen I ever met, but we couldn't, you know, we didn't have enough money for the growth cost cash too. So learning how to balance the cost of, of growth with the cost of, of, of sales and marketing is something that is also often lost. The other big issue in the, in the call center business is the balance sheet issue. A lot of people leave companies and they're in the call center space or they're the vendor manager for their company and they leave and they open up their own call center. They don't understand the costs or how to finance their business. So they wind up getting a nice piece of business. They know what the client needs because they were there. But they have no way of understanding how to finance it. So either they wind up with an investor who has who has put them upside down or they wind up with too much in, in debt without enough profitability mm -hmm. because they want to prove they can deliver that service cheaper than all the vendors could who they who were there when they were there. So there's all of those kinds of balancing things, but it's really um, it's really focusing on five or six numbers and really being disciplined both going up and going down. That's great advice. And you know, one thing around people, right, is whenever you make those hard decisions, you make those cuts, you have any advice on how do you keep the morale and those who stay after cuts like that still in and doing the work and being able to really look at it as something that uh, was needed versus, oh my gosh, the business is going down the drain. Something, I'll call this a very Canadian thing because it's codified in Canada, but it's institutionalized at AnswerNet, and that is treat people with respect. When you need to let somebody go, treat them with respect. Don't use that as an opportunity to crush them or crush their soul. 
when we've when we've had to close centers, you have to listen to people. You have to, you know, you're 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 letting them go, and you have to give them a chance to, you know, have their say, um, and and that's an important thing. Now, I've told my leadership that if firing somebody is ever easy, even if they're a horror show, please quit. Mm-hmm. Because when you terminate somebody, you're telling them that they're not what you want. And to them, what they're hearing is you're not good enough. You don't have the talent or you don't have the skill. And when you do have to lay off and we've had to close centers and we've had to do things like that, you know, it's really about making sure that, you know, people are treated as as well as possible. We've had a number of situations over the years where people get fired for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes the best move is to say nothing, just to say, you know, it's time to move on. Because what are you going to do? What you can prove that, you know, you have a job and they don't? You're going to prove that you're smarter or better? It, it, it's, it's about having, seriously, having respect for human beings and understanding that, that many people attach their self-worth and their own identity to the work they do. And, you know, as somebody who, you know, my, I got fired from Burger King, okay? Early on in my career, I got fired from Burger King. And I went to work for Burger King because the Whopper was my favorite sandwich on the planet at the time. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I want to work at Burger King. And, you know, I was not the right fit. I was not the right culture. The, the, the other, my coworkers would, would goof on me because I was more, you know, I was more of a brainiac than I was a guy to sweep the floor at Burger King. You know, I wasn't against sweeping the floor, but, you know, the guy, the guy who wanted to prove that I was, that I was beneath him, you know, handed me the scrub brush and said, sweep the floor. The owner of the franchise walked up to me because what are you sweeping with i go this is what i was handed and he realized that it just i i didn't fit at burger king so people get fired from jobs for all different kinds of reasons sometimes it you know just sometimes it's just not a cultural fit sometimes they can't do the job that somebody has in mind sometimes it's bad leadership right i i mean i i can tell you that i can think of it a number of people that have left my company because the manager that they were reporting to, and in more than one case, it was probably me, didn't give them what they needed to be successful. And and that's what happens sometimes. Well, it's great advice. And to really look at it as a leader, you know, taking the ownership of where you could have done better or what leadership in general could have done differently, but also realize that you have to make those tough decisions. And when you do, treat people with respect. And that's great advice. So let's kind of hop over to acquisitions. The business has acquired businesses over time, and that's a lot of ways how you've grown. But, you know, how does a business decide that you want to make an acquisition? And then what is it that you're even looking for when you want to make an acquisition? Wow, that's that's a huge question. So one of the things that in making decisions about doing acquisitions, I'm always thinking about the goal. It starts with the goal. And one of the things that I teach wherever I can is you start with your economic and financial goal. And as an entrepreneur, you'll work backwards from your personal goal. So I own my company. 100%, right? So I'm not, my goal isn't my investor's goal or my partner's goal. In fact, 
you know, my partners and I had a pretty public split back in 2011 to 2014, caused in no small part because our goals were had become misaligned. When we started, our, our goals were aligned, then they became misaligned, which I often say is a reason why most investors want in and out of a business in five years. So the um, it starts with a, a goal. Once you decide the goal, then you have to look at what you how you want to grow. Now, if you have money, Growing in this business is very easy. There's there's over 65,000 call centers in America alone. So there's always somebody for sale. There's always somebody for sale. Now, if I'm a financial buyer, I'm going to buy somebody who, you know, at a higher price and I'm going to have an institutional organization. Or if you're like me, I tend to like things that are broken. I often say I like the things that are uglier than most people will buy because rather than throwing a lot of money at some owner, I'd rather put the money into the business and the people in the business to turn it around. I also find that when you bring people into the process, they will do amazing things. So a business will decide, I want to grow. Now, I do a report every month. When I say I, I use the word I, let me make it very clear. I don't do anything, Um, but we have a report that's done every month. We call it the cost of sales report, where I analyze the cost of my sales and marketing department and the salary and commissions that I pay each of my sales executives, and I compare that to what it would cost me to buy revenue. And if I can buy Mm -hmm. revenue at or lower than the price that it would take me to build it, then I buy revenue. You know, it in order for me to reach my financial goal, that's what I do. Now, some people will say it's good to buy revenue if it's if it's um, you know, if I if I wanna um, strategically move from one market to another, I might buy. The more interesting motivation is why do people sell? You know, you know, one of the things that I have had the pleasure of doing is helping people retire where they come to me with a business and they're done. They're tired. Or I often say some owners go from being offensive, where not offensive like saying bad things, but offensive running a business with aggression and running a business for growth and running a business, um, you know, with intention, as my as my friend Judy McKee would say, right? I want to I do this with intention to going – oh, wait, if I lose that account, that costs me this amount of money or my value of my business has just shrunk because I've lost this account. Well, when you go from offensively running your business to defensively running your business, it's time to find a new business. It's also time to find a new business when you are when you are tired of making those decisions. See, the interesting thing is a CEO will only make five or six decisions a year that really mean anything. The problem is you have to keep making those decisions because you never know which of the decisions you make day to day is one of those five. And, and you know, um, my, my, my former partner used to talk about your decision-making and your brain is like any other muscle in your body. And the more you, you use it, the more you exercise it, 
although you couldn't tell that, you know, uh, yeah, I, I exercise, but the more you use it and the more you exercise it, the more successful it will be. In terms of going after acquisitions, for me, it's about what is the value to the company? Can I buy it at a price that I'm going to spend money on sale to grow my company? I'm either going to spend it in sales and marketing or I'm going to grow it in acquisition. And I've gone back and forth because in the answering service world, the values have got, have gone up and gone down. Same thing with bigger call center space, which is one of the reasons I like underperforming companies because generally it takes less cash going in and I'm putting more money into the business to save it, which is why people call me and say, hey, you know, this is something that I know you will like. Totally makes sense. And once you've made that decision, though, you've said this is what I want to do. You made that acquisition. Any tips on what a leader would have to go through to be able to merge that new acquisition into your culture, your process, and technology? Because I can't imagine that being so. It's actually it's actually not terribly hard unless, and this has happened. This happened to me not too long ago. Unless you have a uh, an acquisition of a company that just is so. Their culture is so foreign to yours that it's just not a good fit. I've only really screwed up from a cultural fit and integration five or six times. <laughs> it, I, I, I'm laughing because, you know, it does happen, right? So um, a lot of t- uh, for the most part, though, integrations are easy. They're easy because... People in the call center business tend to be nice. They tend to be relatively honest. They tend to be relatively down to earth, right? Uh, and 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 we've been in this business a long time. You know, when you call me an industry veteran, that still makes me feel weird because you know I didn't even get into the business until my you know thirties until I was thirty seven. So suddenly I'm a, I'm an industry veteran, and I I used to walk around thinking nobody knew me. So uh, you know it, it's it's funny that way, but. I acquired a company that um, that thought it was completely white glove service. It was white glove service, but it had pricing, you know, that just didn't match the service levels that they wanted to give and were giving. So they were struggling. They they and then they lost accounts because they weren't big enough to compete for the accounts that they really wanted. So they they really struggled. The other times that I have really had problems, and I would say that that a big gotcha is when the acquired company or the, the company you're acquiring has a lot of homegrown technology that is being supported mm-hmm. by one person or another person. Okay. It's it's um that probably the two biggest mistakes that I ever made was was were buying companies that had homegrown technologies that I didn't get my arms around fast enough or that I didn't embrace the technologist who built it in a way that would move the technology over to me. So I'd say that is understanding the technologies you're acquiring and how they'll fit into your environment is probably the most difficult and then culture is little less difficult a famous african proverb says that if you want to go fast go alone but if you want to go far go together and how true is this for the contact center industry where business partners that you can call friends are so rare at noble biz 
we made it our mission to travel far and wide with our partners. As a complete telecom services provider with an experience of over 20 years in the industry, NobleBiz offers the only voice carrier network designed with the sole purpose of serving call centers, big or small. Because our goal is to become the ultimate provider for the contact center industry, service quality is on top of our priority list. We will guarantee crystal clear voice quality, legal backup, smart routing, 99.9% .9 uptime, high-grade security, and an easy setup. At Noble Biz, we are confident to affirm that we have the best cost per minute in the entire contact center industry. Do you have any doubts? Get in touch and find out. Learn more about the Noble Biz voice carrier network on www.noblebiz.com. I'll tell you what happened. It's an, it, a funny story back in the mid-2000s, we had just grown and we've been growing. And I looked at myself and, and, and Christian, you and I have known each other for a while. And when you, what you don't know about me, you've heard from reputation. I, I think of myself as a pretty down to earth guy. I, you know, a guy who tries to make people feel at ease and, 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 you know, I didn't start with a whole bunch. So, you know, I, I always think of myself as the guy in the streets, you know, working really hard for the clients to make them happy. So I, I, I do an acquisition. I stand in front of the team and that we just acquired. And I said, we are just like you, only a little bigger. You know, we're mom, pop shop. We're, but what I forgot was that we had just grown so quickly that we had a session and I went from having seven employee handbooks to one. I went from having little or no processes to having significant processes. Three months after that acquisition, the general manager of that business came to me and goes, you lied to us. You know, there's a lot of things you can say to me. Calling me a liar was is never one that fits well with me because my integrity is something that I that I take great pride in. And she goes, I said, what do you mean? She goes, you told us you were just like us. You have processes. And, and so one of the things that I have really focused on as we've grown is not becoming a bureaucratic nightmare. And it's about being approachable. You know, um, I had, I had a buddy of mine who stood up at a conference and once said that CEOs today have to be approachable, have to be, you know, and, and I live that. I, you know, everybody knows how to find me on social media. Everybody knows I'm on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on, you know, I'm on YouTube and I'm on, you know, Twitter. And, and, and so making myself as accessible as possible has been very, a good way that I have successfully integrated. The real key is making sure that leadership and you are aligned. In most acquisitions that I have seen, the reason they fail when they fail is because the leadership of the acquired company never buys in to the leadership of the, um, of the acquirer, and therefore they undermine the company going in. Um, and I've seen it happen many, 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 many times.
Yeah, and that that becomes a very difficult thing to manage through. And I mean, when we talk about experience, both from being approachable from yourself and leadership and where you find yourself online and everywhere else, I know that recently you had put some LinkedIn posts, right? And some of those posts had to do with uh, texting, right? Yell texting. And it's about, you know, having people with COVID symptoms or health issues and that they need to stop working. Can you give some insight into what it's like or what that is that you're managing? Sure. Um, so, you know, yes, Gretchen, yexting is a thing. And then for those people who understand that reference, you know, uh, you know, it's like fetch. But the, the reality is this. One of the big challenges of work at home is that the computer is staring you straight in the face. You can see it. And if you can crawl to it, you think you can work. I often tell people that I'm the luckiest person on the planet. I have a great family. I have a great business. I have people who care so much about me and this company. It it, it boggles my mind. And in in that way, I have people who have had COVID, who could barely breathe and would jump on conference calls because they were home, or they would jump and start doing email. So I got to a point where I was yexting people, yell texting at people to get off the calls, to get out of the email. I got to a point where I actually reached out to people's spouses to tell them to tell their spouse to stop working. Because, and, and it wasn't you know, yes, there's always work to do, especially when you're growing. You know, we've had three years in a row with 30% growth, both through acquisition and internal and internal growth. And there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do every day. And as you grow, one of the big challenges that we've had is teaching people to learn to delegate, learn to manage, learn to measure versus learn to do. But those who are still on that rise, I'm finding people, you know, I'm going into meetings. I, I had a woman who, who's working directly for me, working directly with me on some projects. She couldn't breathe. And she's doing email and she's getting on phone calls. And I literally, I literally had to go to the bo- her boss and say, I want you to tell her that if she doesn't take the day, I'm going to disconnect her credentials from our network. That's how crazy it is. You know, one big piece of advice that I give to to my team is to do something during your normal commute time that will separate your day. Do something Mm -hmm. to get into work and do something to get out of work. But one of the big problems that we've had is that people don't know when to begin or start. And I have the same problem. I, I, I woke up, uh, you know, I woke up yesterday and we're in the middle of an acquisition. Actually, I think we're in the middle of two acquisitions. Um, and I woke up yesterday morning and I started my first Zoom call at eight o'clock in the morning. And at 730 at night, I realized I was still in the same sweatpants that I put on when I got out of bed. And other than the fact that I had a clean T-shirt, I had literally been on back-to-back Zoom calls all day. And I had forgotten to have breakfast. I had, you know, I barely shoved something down my throat for lunch because that computer is always calling. And, and it's not just in the call center business, Christian. It is my, my wife 
does telemedicine at home. And prior to doing telemedicine, when EMR, when the, uh, the electronic medical records became available to her at home, that computer was like a magnet to her. Oh, I can do some of my charts. I can do some of my phone calls. I can do what I can do. I can do. And all of a sudden, you know, people get uncomfortable leaving their computer. And this is a, this is yeah, a well, real problem during this pandemic. Yeah, and work-life balance, because now your sanctuary, your home or your place of bedroom, wherever it may be, because it may be the only place that you can work quietly or within the context of other people in your house, things of that nature. Um, yes, having a routine, get up, get dressed, take a shower like you would to work. If you had a commute, use that time for something else. I know here at, at work with our company, we do yoga a couple times a week for those who want to participate and get away. But find a routine, as you mentioned, get in to what it takes to get to and into work and also the other part disconnecting. And I think all of us have those challenges as well. But one of the things that I know that's really important that you started about two years ago, you started working with a company called Connect Direct, which was helping bring customer service solutions and jobs to the deaf community. How has that been since then? And also how has it been impacted at all during the pandemic? Well, Connect Direct is doing amazingly. So let me just for those who um, those who don't know what we're talking about, uh, Connect Direct is owned by uh, Communication Services for the Deaf, which is the largest nonprofit organization for the deaf in the United States. Connect Direct is run by my friend Craig Radford, and I'm going to just warn you, Christian, that you're going to. When you post this and I share this on my social media, please make sure that there are captioning for this podcast. Because when I do do podcasts and I post them, all of my connections in the deaf community get very frustrated when we don't have captions. So I, I made this connection to uh, CSD at a PACE conference where I got to meet a gentleman from the FCC named Robert McConnell. And, and Rob uh, is it runs the services for the deaf. And, and um, my buddy, Bob Kobeck, who's also very active in PACE, and I think, Christian, you probably know Bob. Um, you know, Bob was talking was talking to Rob across the room, and they were just, the, they were signing each other, I think. And, and unconsciously, I signed over, I signed something, and all of a sudden, the two of them made a beeline. So I was sitting there, and as the night went, and he wound up sitting next to me, um, and as the night went on and we had cocktails, my signing got so much better. It was wonderful. And, um, <laughs> and, and we were talking about uh, the, the need for, you know, for call centers and, and different technologies and things like that, and he introduced me to Craig, and the Connect Direct program is to bring first-person ASL care to uh, the deaf community. So a lot of people don't know that ASL is the fourth most spoken language in the United States. But very little, that community is really sort of disparate. So the, the goal for them has been to get companies to hire them to do first party ASL. So much of what we do is we either resell their service or we're providing the voice, the the voice services, the hearing services, to their uh, text-based and ASL-based services. So it's been an amazing partnership. Craig, I've watched Craig grow as a CEO. 
I've watched the organization grow. I know they are doing some wonderful things. I know one of their one of their real rock clients has been Comcast. Um, and and as you see, you know, I, I watch Comcast. They're they're a company that I admire greatly. And here's another example where um, they are providing first-person ASL service. And we have nothing to do with that relationship, but I know it's a really important one for them. And we've started going together with Connect Direct to deaf-owned businesses where the owners are, you know, are catering to the deaf community, particularly in communities like Rochester and LA and, and down in Florida, where there are large in D.C., where there are large pockets of the deaf community. So it's been going great, and it's a great opportunity for me to encourage all the businesses and call centers who listen. If you want to differentiate yourself, um, you know, give me a call. I'm happy to help connect you with my friends at Connect Direct. What a great service, and then also being able to empower all those people with jobs and being able to help others in that space, which is great. Yeah, now, before, just one point, Christian, and, before pandemic, 50% yeah. of the deaf population was, the, was either unemployed or underemployed. My my college advisor, who is still a dear friend, Bill Copeland, said to me, you can do well and do good all at the same time. You know, now he would all have us in public service doing well and, and starving. But, you know, we do. <laughs> you can do well and do good at the same time. And, and that relationship is a great example for, for answering it. Absolutely. And with that said, uh, being able to do something well and hopefully produce some good, you're a great blue <laughs> I like to think of myself as a rock drummer, but okay. You know, um. <laughs> well, a great drummer, but I mean, with that said, I mean, you you have to have a favorite blues song or song you like to listen to or play. Do you have something you want to share with, with everybody that you really enjoy? The songs that, that we play. So for, for you know, to, to explain, in my 50s, uh, all five of my children went to college. And for a few brief moments, we, my wife and I were empty nesters. And I say that because they come back, you know, even we tried to move and they still found us. But the, uh, so I, I was looking for something to do. I, I no longer had all of these children. And when my wife and I met uh, and moved in together, all five children were in high school. So we went from having all this activity to having none of this activity. So after 35 years of not playing music, I got back into playing music. And today I play in two bands. And if the goal of the bands is to have fun. So we play music that people love to hear. So we will play in a show. We'll do Motown. We'll do Roadhouse Blues. We'll do Grateful Dead. We'll play. Um, we'll play uh, Jenny Jenny. We can, you know, we of course we do uh, Moon Dance and uh, um, you know uh, Mustang Sally because every cover band does it. But the whole idea <laughs> is we go out and we play and we make people happy. We bring people in. Um, and for me personally, what makes it special is in the electric band, my. My uh, bass player does workforce management for us. My lead singer, um, the male lead singer, is my vice president of sales. Uh, in the both of the bands, my chief of staff is the keyboard player, and you know. And then we have uh, uh, we have some other folks who are in it. So I'm not only playing, you know, with with some people from outside, but I'm also playing with some of the people in the company. 
And the joy that I feel, feel playing in front of people, sharing our music, you know, Comfortably Numb is a song that, that it has a great drum part, um, but we also do all the small things. Right, which also has a great drum part, or uh, you know, I and I channel my inner uh, my inner Keith Moon by playing some Who music. So you know, it is it is all about having fun and making sure that the people in the in the bar, in the restaurant, in the venue are having as much fun as we are. Well, that's got to be tough considering with the pandemic it's not been easy for you to actually play for anybody, right? It has. We've, we've only done about four. So the year before the pandemic, we played about 20 shows. And last year we did about five, two of which were private parties where a homeowner built a stage in his backyard for us. And, and quite frankly, I didn't get off the stage. When we played, the last time we played was in January. So my hope originally was that, we have a, a senior meeting where I bring people into Philadelphia. I was hoping to do that in person in January. Of course, that was yeah. insane. But when I load in yeah. during pandemic, I'm wearing gloves. I'm wearing a mask. I stay behind the, the, the drums for most of the night. You know, um, if I go to the bar, go to the bathroom, I wear my mask. Um, I'm a big believer in, in social distancing and mask. And so that hasn't happened. But I'm, I'm a week away from getting my second shot. We just scheduled every summer. Christian, you and I have a mutual friend by the name of Stuart Discount. Um, and mm-hmm. every summer we play down outside of Atlantic City at a, at a place called Maynard's. We do a fundraiser for um, for a foundation uh, that was that Stuart started in honor of his son, uh, the Melanoma Research Foundation. So we've scheduled that for August 14, and I plan on being all in. You know, last year during the pandemic, we did it. It was a two-hour wait for a table because you couldn't dance, you couldn't. But I'm 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 really yeah. hoping that this year we're able to bring everybody back and we're able to have the kind of party and the kind of time that makes you know it's the perfect it's a perfect perfect summer night. So if anybody wants to be Absolutely. around Atlantic City on August 14, Bucket Band Philly at Maynard's in Margate. Awesome. Well, on that note. Gary, as always, it's a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for stopping by. Do you have any final thoughts or anything for our audience before we leave? And where can they find you in the business if they want to reach so, you? So you can always find me at answernet.com, www.answernet.com. Uh, you can also find me on all time, uh, Answernet and me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube. If you want to watch our videos, you can you can go to any of those places. So those are the best place. We also have our technology division, which is sahosted.com. And um, and of course, don't forget Bucket Band Philly and Fun Size. So uh, and if you, you ask me what I want to leave people with, and, and that is that even in the worst time, even in the most difficult time, happiness is not underrated. Focus on the things that make you happy. Set goals to be happy and, and create a life that that takes you to those goals because life is not a dress rehearsal. It is the show. So make it make your life count. Awesome. Well, that's perfect. And everyone listening out there, thanks for joining us on another fascinating journey to the world of contact centers and the people that are in them. So I'm your host, Christian Montez. Catch you next time. Thanks for joining. 
If you like what you're hearing, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Check out our YouTube channel for exclusive clips. Like us, rate us, review us. If you want to hear more on our take on coronavirus, remote work, and contact centers, go to NobelBiz.com and click on webinars to see our recorded on-demand webinars. Thanks for listening to First Contact Stories of the Call Center. My name is Christian Montez, and we'll be back soon with our next episode. This podcast has been hosted by me, Christian Montez, produced, written, and edited by Bogdan Minutes, with co-executive producers Steve Biederman, Christian Montez, and Bogdan Minutes. <laughs>